0: We're continuing in our series in Ephesians, and as of last week, we finished uh, Paul's uh, doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 3, and this morning we begin his, uh, um, basically the three chapters that now focus on practice. As you know, Paul does that uh, quite habitually in most of his epistles. Uh, he tends to, to lay out the great and wondrous truths of uh, of the gospel before he gets to how we are to live. And that is precisely because when our hearts and minds are inflamed by the truth, when they embrace it, when they understand it, when they love it, then doing what we ought to do is the thing we want to do. And that is what obedience is all about. Doing what we want to do, which is also what he wants us to do. So we begin... Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 through verse 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Our Father, instruct us this morning, we pray, about how to live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called. It's one thing to sort of understand it with our minds, but to love it and to do it. Lord, you know how often we fail in that. But we want to revisit this truth as we move through this epistle. and You have placed it here for us once again, that we might, at this proper time, consider it afresh and anew. Therefore, may your Holy Spirit grant us an ever-increasing insight and clarity into your will for us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. September of 1995, Cal Ripken Jr. broke a record that no one ever thought was going to be broken. And that was the record of Lou Gehrig's uh, Iron Man feat of playing in 2,131 consecutive games. Now that's a lot of games. 2,131 consecutive games. Ripken gave much of the credit to the way he was raised by his father, to his teaching and to his example. His father had been a, a minor league player, but then in the majors had actually gone on to manage and then to uh, uh, also served as a coach with the Orioles. The following year, in 1996, Cal Ripken Sr. was inducted into the Orioles Hall of Fame. And after giving his, uh, his uh, speech uh, in receiving uh, the, uh, the honor, uh, his son, Cal Ripken Jr., came up to uh, uh, just say something about his relationship with his father. And he was, he was really worried about how he was going to communicate just what an important influence his father had been on him. And he, comm- he, uh, he writes about it in a book that he wrote entitled, The Only Way I Know. And he said this. He said, it was difficult. I wasn't certain I could say what I wanted about my father and what he means to me. So I told a little story about my two children, Rachel, six at the time and Ryan, then three. They'd been bickering for weeks. And I explained how one day Rachel taunted Ryan, You're just trying to be like Daddy. (laughs) Well, after a few moments of indecision, I, I asked Rachel, What's wrong with trying to be like Dad? And then Cal Jr. turns and he says, When I finished telling the story, I looked at my father and he said, that's what I've always tried to do. In many respects, that's precisely what Paul wants us to see here. What could be more right than our trying to be like our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ? Paul has been giving us these, these great and wondrous truths of these first three chapters. And now for the next three, he goes on to say, I want you To live like he is. And he focuses ultimately on two things. First, that we are to live in unity, in love, and in care for one another. Secondly, that we are to live godly, holy lives. Those are the two things. He takes up three chapters talking about that. But that is his focus. Now, ultimately, you can put it in the very words of the first sentence. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That's the proposition that we're looking at this morning. To walk worthy of God. It's not something that any of us can do on our own. It's not something that any of us have the power or even the inclination to do, apart from God's abiding presence in us by his Holy Spirit, both to create the desire and the enablement to do so. But that is our ultimate hope. And that is how Paul proceeds on that very assumption. Because he's been talking, as you know, about the power that resides in us to do just this very thing. And so he begins by talking about the call that God is laying upon our lives. Then he talks about the character of that call in verses 2 and 3. And then he talks about the source or the cause of it in verses 4 through 6. That being the Trinity itself. So we'll proceed as he does and begin to look first at the call to a worthy walk. Paul doesn't waste any time, does it? He? he just launches right into it. There's no, there's no small talk. I, therefore, a prisoner, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The word for entreat is really interesting because it is the very word parakaleo from which we get paraclete, or one who's called alongside to help, meaning the Holy Spirit. Here Paul uses the word to seek help or to be a helper. But he adds to that a deep sense of of desire, a strong desire or intense feeling. It's almost as though he's begging us here. I'm entreating you. I'm calling upon you. Walk in this manner. Walk worthy of God. The word worthy is is fascinating too, because it means basically balancing scales. You know how the old scales used to be. You'd you'd have a, a, a pan on one side and a pan on the other, and they would come up to the beam, and if you put one side heavier than the other, it would go like this. But Paul is saying worthy is basically having equal weight on both sides. So, for instance, when the scriptures say a man is worthy of his hire, it means that You pay him according to his worth. How much he's worked. That's what you do. If he's doing the work, you give him his wage. Here, what he's saying is that because we have been called by Jesus Christ to be his people, we are to live consistently with who we are. With what we are. As God's people. Sort of like... Well, it's like being called up from the minor leagues to the major leagues. When you're called up from the minor league to the major league, there's a new expectation of how you're going to perform. You're not supposed to come up and perform like a minor leaguer. Right? When you're called up to the major, you're supposed to begin to think and play like a major leaguer. Well, when we have been called out of darkness into light... When we've been called from the kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of God's own son, we are called to live up to a new and higher expectation. And that requires a new way of thinking. Just, just the same way as a, as a minor leaguer who becomes a major league baseball player has to begin to take himself more seriously or, or think more professionally or whatever it happens to be. So you and I, when we are removed from our slavery to sin and set free in Jesus Christ, we have to think differently as well. And Paul, of course, addresses that in Romans 12 too. He says, that all begins with the transformation of the mind. When we have been regenerated in the inner man by the working of the Holy Spirit, we must begin to saturate our minds with the truth of Scripture. So that we come to understand who we are and the kind of world that we live in and the God who was there and the the resources that come to us as a result of that great truth. That's what begins to transform us. That's what changes our mindset from from being a minor leaguer, if you will, to a a major league player. And that is what also, in many respects, begins to prepare us literally, to be men and women who know how to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Now Paul moves to the character, what it looks like. And here is really, he he begins a section on unity, which he's going to carry out from verse 2 right through verse 16. We're only going through the first section of it this morning ourselves. But he begins to say that this life is characterized with all humility, and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, he, he takes all of these different pieces and he puts them together in this this beautiful quilt, if you will, of what it means to live as Christians in unity. The first thing he says is that, were to be humble. Now he's speaking to a generation that lives in the midst of a culture that does not respect humility. The Greco Roman world humility was was a you were a loser. Alright? That was slave mentality. If you were a humble person, you were a slave. You walked around with your eyes down, you never lifted them to your master, you did what you were told. Now they they loved the the man that was great soul the man who was self sufficient. Within the last years, probably uh, one of those uh, who epitomized that was uh, Ernest Hemingway, at least in his opinion of himself. Right, he was a man who who really understood that. In his prime, he, he believed himself to be self assured and, uh, and very capable, and that he didn't need anything. And in many respects, he put himself uh, in his uh, novel, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, as the great white hunter. And in that novel, it's really fascinating. The hunter's mistress says this of him You're the most complete man I've ever known. <laughs> You're the most complete man I've ever known. I mean, that is precisely what the Greeks would have loved. Complete. Needing nothing. And Paul says, cast that aside. I'm extolling humility. More than that, I'm joining it to gentleness. Now, gentleness in our culture, we we think that's namby-pamby. That's wimpy. That's... Dare I say it, feminine. But that's not the biblical meaning of gentleness. As you all know, it means strength under control. It's, it's not weakness. And, matter of fact, the strongest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, spoke about himself in both of those terms. Matthew 11 29, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And we see his gentleness, don't we? For instance, when, when he's dealing with his but those who oppose him, who hate him. Does he revile them? No. He forgives them. It's an extraordinary amount of self-control that he exercises in order not to retaliate against even his most abrasive, virulent enemies. And Paul says we're to be like that. What's more, he says, we're not just to be humble and gentle. He says we're supposed to be patient, showing forbearance to one another in love. And patient means literally long-tempered, not short-tempered. Mm-hmm. Many of us understand short-tempered, but long-tempered. That's what patience means. When Henry Stanley uh, went to uh, Africa in 1871 to, uh, to write about um, uh, David Livingston, he spent several months with Livingston, watching him very closely. And it was interesting because Livingston never said a single word to Stanley about spiritual things. Not a word. Stanley just watched him work among the African people. And he was confounded. Because here were these people who didn't understand what Livingston was trying to do or trying to say or anything else... And he just, he admired Livingston's patience. He just kept going for these people, sacrificing himself, giving himself, loving them, serving them. So much so, that ultimately Stanley wrote this. He said, when I saw that unwearied patience, that unflagging zeal, and those enlightened sons of Africa, meaning those who came to faith... I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke to me one word. I mean, here you have the patience of a man dealing with people in need. And just the other observing that patience has, by God's grace, the power to convert. Because he saw in his own soul that he did not have that kind of patience. And you recognize it as God given. Hey, God's people are to be patient, and that really means, if you want to put it in a nutshell, it means not complaining or questioning or grumbling, no matter what God does with us. And that's not hard. That's not easy. Because we all have our our desires, we all have our own goals for our lives, we all have our own agendas. And the moment God crosses us, boy, get out of the way. But patience trusts. Patience accepts that what God is doing is right and good. And it embraces it. The next thing he says is that we are to be forbearing with one another in love. Dwight uh, Pentecost told a a story, and and it's one of the saddest stories I've ever read. He he talked about a church that he was familiar with that uh, went into a huge split. And, And it was so bad that both groups in the church took one another to court because each one of them wanted the physical facility. They wanted the church building and the property. And they wanted the other group cast out. Well, when they got to the civil court, the civil court just looked at them like they were crazy and wouldn't even take the case. Somehow they ended up before church court, which is where they should have been to begin with. And when the church court issued its judgment, one group, of course, got the church plant, facility, and the other did not. And they they went off in a huff and started their own church a couple blocks away. But what was most astonishing about the whole thing was how it started. Before the split, there'd been a church supper. And at the church supper, one of the elders had gotten a piece of ham that was slightly smaller than the boy who was sitting next to him. We're all that petty, not just elders. We're all that petty. And so, for the lack of forbearance and patience and love, they split a church. They ripped the fabric of the unity that God had created by his spirit tore it asunder. Forbearing love is powerful. In fact, Peter tells us in his his first epistle, in chapter 4, verse 8, that it covers a multitude of sins. And what he means by that is, is that it doesn't excuse or justify someone else's sin. But it puts a damper on it by, by not speaking of it unnecessarily. In other words, if you know somebody's sinned, you don't go gossiping it as a, as a prayer request. You keep it to yourself. You cover it over in love you acknowledge it's already virulent and powerful and you don't make matters worse. Proverbs puts it this way. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. In other words, forbearing love takes abuse from others but continues to love in response. That's not easy. That requires... The reality of Christ living in us and through us. And yet that is precisely what God has given to every one of us. Finally, Paul adds, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And here he's basically saying, make every effort, be zealous, get after it, do everything you possibly can to maintain the unity of the body. And this has tremendous significance for any local church. Because as you and I both know, the possibility for schism in a church, for for disagreements that can get out of control, it's huge. And it is only the grace of God and the willingness of God's people to recognize that those things transgress his best plan for for each of us to put it down and to not allow our pride to run away and cause us to do and say things that we ought not to do and say. Such unity cannot come from the outside. It, it, It can't be put on us, for instance, by a set of bylaws or a constitution. It has to come from the inside. It has to be the very things that, well, it has to be, What we see Paul talking about here, the inner qualities of patience and forbearing with one another in love and humility. As those things are worked out in each and every one of our lives towards one another, we actually promote this kind of unity. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree. Always agreeing isn't the issue. But it's learning how to disagree and still respect and honor and care for one another that is so crucial for any local body. From verses 4 through 6 now, Paul moves to talk about the cause of this worthy walk. And he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. Seven of them. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, one is the number of unity. Right? And we have seven of them here. And they're all clustered together in the Trinity. Because if you look at it, you see the Holy Spirit spoken of in verse 4, Jesus in verse 5, and the Father in verse 6. And what is the Trinity but three in unity? Three in one. So Paul, this this great master of language, and one who of course is inspired by the Spirit to write as he was uh, instructed, gives to us in this great sentence this incredible picture of unity, which is found in the Trinity, which is the source of our unity as God's people. The first thing he mentions, of course, is the Holy Spirit. He says there is one body and one spirit. And he says that simply because it's the Holy Spirit who creates the body of Christ. It is he who regenerates. It is he who calls. It is he who sanctifies. It is he who gifts the church. It is he who guides it through to its appointed end. And there's a the person of Christ in his work in ministering unity. He says, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, we know he's talking about Jesus Christ here because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says, There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. And as our Lord, he is the focus of our faith. It is faith in his shed blood that saves us, that redeems us. And it is baptism into his name. That identification with him that binds us together as bodies, as a local body of Christ. Lastly, he gets to the person of the Father. He says, one God and Father who is all and over all and through all and in all. And here what he represents is is the fact that every one of us can call God God our father brothers sisters here there anywhere in the world we all have the same heavenly father we are family now the implication of all of this is paul simply saying is that because you are rooted in the trinity no one can destroy the unity you have in jesus christ and to one another any more than someone could destroy the unity of the trinity Because it is produced by God himself. It is divinely produced. It is not a surface thing. You know as well as I do, when you meet another Christian, there is an instant connection, an instant recognition that something binds you together. You have something in common, and that is not something you created. That is something that exists because God has created it. That is the unity of the spirit that he's talking about here. Not just we have fellowship, we enjoy each other's company, and that sort of thing. But the fact that we have been given by one another, or by him rather, a unity that exists because of Christ's blood shed for us. And our common sharing in that truth. There was an elderly man once who was uh, uh, finally about to retire. he had been spent his entire career in the British Army. And one day he was, uh, he was walking home with uh, the armload of groceries. And uh, a friend of his decided he was going to play, play a prank on him. And he comes up uh, behind the guy and he says, Attention! The guy immediately dropped all of his bags and went straight to attention. Because he'd been a soldier all his life. Because it was natural for him to do that. Similarly, as believers in Jesus Christ, it is natural for us to take on the likeness of God the Father and the Son as we live our lives. As we take on these very characteristics of humility and forbearance and patience and the rest. As we embrace the fact that we are joined together by God's spirit never to be torn asunder brethren there is great joy in this and that is precisely the reason that we come to this table together it is not a private exercise this is a public exercise this is a, a common exercise if you will in which we come together as his people and I would encourage you to allow that to prepare your hearts for our time at the table this morning let's pray our father we are uh, once again grateful for the teaching of your word for the fact that you are deeply uh, uh, caring about how we live our lives we thank you that you don't leave us without instruction and without enablement by your spirit without all the truth that is necessary for us to understand it and to live it out before the world. You know how poorly we, uh, we often do that. Yep. you also know the very desire you have set within us to do that. And so we ask that you would continue to allow our lives more and more every day to be more consistent with the calling that you have laid upon our lives in Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in His name. Amen.